you know, society, they like the way this guy makes ice cream, but the other guy, they don't like his ice cream that much, and they don't buy it, so it uh, fades out. What's that? Supply and demand. Free enterprise. Competition. The profit bonus. Down on the economy, stupid. Where is it? From everywhere, everywhere. Hello and welcome in this new episode of Everyday Economics, hosted by Justin LaRue, Lanny Zrill, and Grégoire Maillard. As you may have noticed, this episode is special because one of us is not here in the studio today, but happily for you and for hers, he is still here with his voice. Yeah, my COVID voice. <laughs> in today's episode, we're going to talk about what's happening with LVMH and Tiffany's, and also what's happening with the recent increase of food prices. After that, we're going to talk about the main topic of the day, which is cost, and some amusing stories around it. Finally, Theo, one of our listeners, contacted us, and we will answer to his voice message. As a reminder, if you want to participate to the following episode by reacting about something we said, or if you want to talk about another topic, please contact us by Messenger or by Instagram, or simply by email, and you may be in the next episode. So, last Thursday... LVMH, so Louis Vuitton Mouet Hennessy, which is the the world's largest luxury goods conglomerate, which is owned by a French person um, called Bernard Arnault. Uh, they have backed out of a deal to acquire Tiffany's and company. So Tiffany's, you all know, especially in the United States, is this very famous jewelry brand where you know there's this this teal light blue color of boxes and uh, breakfast in Tiff at tiffany's is a is a famous movie and so there was a it was a deal that was worth 16 billion dollars but lvmh backed out of it very, very recently so this deal that was uh that was just ended or that just ended up not happening was um was an agreement that was made nine months ago but very recently i, I mean over time, things have fizzled out for a number of reasons. The, re the reason this deal did not happen is uh, there was two reasons, basically. W one reason is that the French government actually requested that uh, LVMH back out of the agreement, uh, notably because of uncertainty facing possible tariffs imposed by the U.S. for French imports. Because if this becomes owned by LVMH being a French brand, and uh, so not just French imports, but European imports in general, LVMH being a European brand, who knows who the next president is going to be? There's, you know, still a chance that it could be, it could be Donald Trump again with, uh, with the prospect of having high, high tariffs. The other reason is that you know the, this pandemic uh, has caused a lot of damage to the luxury industry, so it may, the value of the deal is is a lot less than it used to be. So this is why LVMH backed out. So LVMH backed out of an agreement that that was already made. So is this something that they can? can actually do or they've just taken this position and now, uh, you know, we're going to see the fallout, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, I mean, I assume legal fallout um, or was it a situation where it was an agreement in principle and they just said, okay, you know, now that it's time to sign things, uh, let's not sign. So it's definitely going to involve the courts. I mean, Tiffany has mobilized uh, some lawyers to, to fight this. So presumably they have grounds. So something must have been signed in the past. You know, it's kind of like when you, you buy a home, you kind of sign this promise to purchase and, and then right. there's a closing date. And uh, in between, you know, there's this kind of in-between area where, where the deal is supposed to happen. There's been some significant steps being taken, but it's still not completely closed. 
And I mm-hmm. think that's the situation that they were in. So LVMH is a big luxe uh, company. And, um, and Tiffany is definitely has uh, some good market share in it. Is it legal to have uh, that sort of conglomerate of luxe existing? Because like uh, with, with that much uh, market power, they can put the, the price they want in the end. Well, that's what got me interested in the article in the first place is because, like you said, these are two huge companies that are merging or that would have merged, which would have brought them such a significant share, so definitely a majority share of, uh, of luxury goods in, in North America and Europe. And, and you wonder, why is this possible? I know there are antitrust laws and why are, aren't they intervening? And my understanding of this is because the reason antitrust laws exist is because it's to, it's to protect consumers from from price increases but here we're talking about luxury goods and so this makes things completely different because i mean first of all who cares you know if your if your ten thousand dollar diamond ring you know ends up costing thirteen thousand dollars i mean all right you just pay more for it but i mean it's 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 a luxury expense not it's not a necessary expense so that's one thing and in fact even the the owners of these expensive goods might actually enjoy the fact that You know, their goods are even more expensive, which, you know, really draws the line between themselves who can afford them and the rest of the populace who can't. So uh, it's, it's a pretty striking situation where you would imagine that there would be a case for, for limiting market concentration. But here, because it's a luxury uh, industry, it's really not. Well, I think, you know, we'll have an opportunity to talk about this uh, sort of stuff later on. But if you look at the, you know, banking industry or telecommunications industry in Canada, you know, here are uh, goods where there's a high concentration of market power. And, you know, as a result, um, you know, to a certain extent, you know, high prices that follows, but it affects, you know, everybody who's, you know, almost everybody, virtually everybody uses a bank or uses telecommunications. So from a, you know, consumer protection or uh, government policy or social welfare perspective, this is probably more significant than worrying about, you know, consolidation in the luxury market. Because, you know, like you said, uh, who cares if the diamond ring is now 30% more expensive? It's not an essential item for people to have. And, Like you said, uh, maybe it being more expensive is even better for the type of people who consume luxury goods. So I, I think that uh, I mean, certainly it brings up an interesting issue that we face in Canada with some of our other industries. But, you know, at some point you have to draw the line, uh, at, you know, to the level at which you want the government to be involved. But also I was wondering if LVMH succeed to break the contract with Tiffany's, wouldn't it be a, a bad signal for all the other contracts going on? right now with the pandemic, because it could create a jurisprudence which could cause many other contracts to, to break as well. Uh, many years ago, um, I, I read this fascinating book by uh, the uh, economist uh, Hernando del Soto, uh, which was called The Mystery of Capital. And uh, what De Soto was doing was he had this hypothesis that the differences in economic growth between developed and developing countries uh, was due largely to their legal institutions. And one of those legal institutions is the ability to sign contracts. And if you're in an economy that doesn't have uh, a strong um, institution to enforce contracts, it's very hard to come to any type of long-term agreement, uh, including, you know, I mean, debt contracts, which are, you know, often required in order to finance investment. And so De Soto's theory was the absence of uh, 
you know, institutions protecting property rights in these developing countries made it harder for them to get on uh, a good uh, development trajectory. And so if we apply the same sort of idea to this problem here, uh, if, you know, like Greg suggested, the dissolution of this contract signals to the marketplace that, you know, contracts are not worth anything anymore, uh, not only will we see a bunch of deals that presently exist fall apart, um, but we're also going to see less deals happen going forward. And, you know, you know, we were talking a little bit before about, you know, whether it matters from a social welfare perspective, whether, you know, Tiffany's and this, you know, large conglomerate can come to an agreement. Well, it might not, but there are going to be other types of agreements that, you know, might have a more significant impact on uh, society or, or impact more people with more significant, uh, in more significant ways uh, that may not uh, come to fruition uh, if, People are worried that that you know people can back out of contracts without any legal consequences. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I, in this particular case, uh, what what they're so it, uh, yes, it is a legal battle for sure. And so there are arguments being presented on on both sides of the case. And and one argument that LVMH is probably going to, to in fact, already maybe has uh, brought up is that the situation has changed a whole lot between nine months ago and today. And so if you want to talk about jurisprudence, I mean, okay, but then if you wanted to reapply this particular case, then it would have to be one that matches the context as well. And not just the fact that it's somebody backing out of a contract. It's somebody backing out of a contract after a huge hit to the industry due to a worldwide pandemic. I mean, there's a whole whole set of things happening at the same time. Well, I think that's a great point, Justin, because, you know, it, it isn't clear uh, what the best outcome here is uh, for the economy or for society. It may even be the case that, uh, like you said, things have changed so much. Perhaps this isn't the type of deal that we want going uh, through. Uh, simply from you know a, a you know numbers perspective, um, taking away kind of the you know you know the more subtle economic issues. Mm, exactly. So let's move on to the next topic of the week, uh, Lani. I think you prepared something for us. Uh, okay, so this week uh, I wanted to talk about something that I read in the news recently that I think is important for all of us, but you know maybe especially important for uh, some of the students who might be listening to this podcast, which is uh, there was a report from uh, Statistics Canada that uh, was reported in the media fairly broadly about uh, the increase in the cost of food across all categories uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, which we'll say you know started roughly in March and you know is continuing and. Um, at the same time that we had this increase in the prices of food, um, you know, the economy hasn't been doing very well. And so many incomes have stayed, you know, the same. Uh, some have fallen. People have lost their jobs. And so what this does is it, it creates a, a difficult situation for people who are affected by both of these factors in a significant way, right? That, uh, you know, if you're a person who has a relatively low income to begin with and the prices of food go up, um, if you want to continue eating the same amount of food, it's going to take a bigger chunk out of your monthly expenditures, leaving less uh, for everything else. And so, you know, for a low-income family that has, you know, a few children, uh, this can have a really big impact. Even if it's a relatively modest increase in the price of food that just reflects the cost, uh, the increased cost of, of providing food, which, mm -hmm. you know, the article that I read goes on to discuss that, you know, to a certain extent, the increase in the food prices really does follow from new costs associated with, um, you know, keeping the supply chain, you know, safe and, and hygienic and, you know, delivering the food to the customer in, in a safe way. And so I think that, you know, 
it was something that occurred to me that you know was very important because of the effect it would have on low-income people, low-income families, and as well on on students who have lower incomes and you know where food does take up a, a big portion of uh, their expenditures from month to month. So the article that you've read, how much by how much have prices increased? The, I think the average overall was about three to five percent. Um, again, more or less reflecting just the increase in the cost of, of providing the final product to people. Um, so we're not talking about you know massive increases like 20%, but you know again, if you're a person who lives paycheck mm -hmm. to paycheck, a, a 3% increase in your food budget uh, is going to have uh, potentially a big effect on your, your quality of life. Because you can't really cut back on other stuff. You're already kind of spending all of your money into essential Essential like housing and food and and that's pretty much it, right? You buy a, a little bit of a few clothes when you need when you need them, but it's not luxury stuff. Right, right exactly. So yeah. people are going to make you know people in this position are going to make substitutions away from other things that we might consider to be uh, essential. Um, you know, which you know, for example, people might have to cut back on their housing expenditures or childcare expenditures or health expenditures mm -hmm. uh, in order to continue you know eating the same amount of food, or maybe people have to make compromises in the quality or quantity of food that they're going to consume. And so, you know, even this relatively innocuous, you know, increase in mm -hmm. uh, food prices, which again is totally justified by the increased cost of providing, um, you know, potentially has some really negative effects across the socioeconomic spectrum. That's right, you, you cut back on, on activities that cost money but are actually good for your health, for instance, like you can, you can no longer, you decide, well, I'm gonna have to, you know, I have, maybe I had a gym membership, you know, and, and then I can't have it anymore because I need to eat instead, but then your, your health deteriorates because you're not working out and therefore it's, it ends up costing you more in the long run. And so this is one of, not only is it definitely unpleasant for the, for the people who are subject to that, but it's also overall, it's becoming, it's costly for everyone, right? Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, I think also one of the things is thinking about the psychological stress of a family trying to provide for their children Mm -hmm. And, you know, feeling this extra economic pressure uh, above and beyond, you know, the, the instability that's existing in the labor market, the stagnation of wages yep. uh, and the uncertainty that we have uh, going forward. Uh, this is a really concrete way uh, in which, you know, more stress is being placed on households to provide uh, in a time that's already extremely stressful. I mean, these people are also wrestling with the decision about, you know, what are we going to do with our children going mm -hmm. back to school? Uh, and at the same time, they're trying to figure out, well, how do we maintain the same level of uh, food expenditures and, and health for our families? Exactly. And schools are no longer providing snacks because you have to bring your own snacks because they because of the whole COVID and, and situation. And so that's another thing that you have to think about. Right. And, you know, uh, another thing to mention here is that, you know, we do expect, you know, some natural fluctuation in prices that, that comes along uh, with, you know, what we call in economics, you know, the business cycle, right, the boom mm -hmm. and bust cycle of the economy as a whole. Um, but in this case, it's a little bit different because to the extent that the um, the safety measures for food are permanent, right? These cost increases are, are also permanent. And so that means that, you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, wages on average are going to stagnate uh, due to, you know, this, this pandemic, um, this could put pressure on people over a long period of time. And so where are we in terms of uh, economic relief, you know, in Canada and uh, maybe some of the provinces? I mean, there's been, there's been checks really cut out for low-income people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, in addition to the usual uh, social welfare uh, supports that exist, uh, both at the federal and provincial level, um, you know, the government moved very quickly 
uh, in March to create the uh, the CERB program, uh, which was a way of just getting money into the hands of people who had been displaced from their jobs, mm -hmm. uh, either temporarily or permanently, uh, as a result of uh, the initial lockdown that happened in March. Uh, over the course of the summer, you know, the CERB program was extended a little bit, um, but at the moment they're you know, in the midst of, of closing the CERB program and uh, moving people who are still affected um, into the usual employment insurance, uh, you know, stream of social services. Uh, and so it sort of remains to be seen, you know, whether those supports will be adequate. Um, but, you know, one thing that is sort of without question is that, you know, the economy has suffered significantly uh, from uh, the pandemic and, and the you know safety measures that were taken to avoid uh, a catastrophe like was seen in some other countries, mm -hmm. and some of that is persisting um, today in terms of you know like constraints on the ability to find employment and income, uh, in addition to the rising costs of uh, essentials like food. So you know this is you know one of these things that maybe isn't talked about quite as much because you know our primary concern these days is our personal security mm -hmm. and maybe we don't think quite as much about the the extent to which the pandemic has uh, caused financial insecure, insecurity uh, across society. So I, I think that you know this issue um, you know seemingly relatively simple you know prices have gone up what else is new um, but we're in a, a very special situation where those prices are going up at the same time we're in the middle mm -hmm. of a, a significant recession. And uh, this is going to affect uh, low-income people, including students, disproportionately. Yeah, I, I saw on Twitter uh, CNN sharing an article saying millennials eat less than they should. And someone replied, oh my God, CNN just discovered poverty. <laughs> <laughs> So for this second part of the emission, the sound may not be that optimal. Uh, it's due to some technical problems uh, back in the time. But anyway, we hope you will enjoy the show. So today's topic is about cost. Uh, there's like marginal cost, there's sunk cost, there's opportunity cost. Well, so let's start with what do you mean by opportunity cost? Exactly. Well, what are you not doing right now? <laughs> I'm not working, uh, so uh, I, I'd have to say that maybe this is a, this is a benefit. Okay, good. And that makes me feel good. It means at least this doesn't feel like work to you. This is great. But that's what an opportunity cost is, right? It's it's what it's what you're not doing right now. What is the cost of not doing that stuff that you could have done? It's the second best option. Yeah, you guys want to share about this? Also, you know what uh, I always thought about this idea of opportunity cost is uh, this is a concept that's you know absolutely central to how people make decisions. It's something that every person understands, whether they've studied economics or not. Every day we make decisions about you know what to do with our money, what to do with our time, and necessarily that means not doing something with uh, something else with our money or something else with our time. Everyone is very good at figuring out you know what they should do with themselves on a Friday evening when there's lots of different options. You know, everyone knows if you go to party A, you can't go to party B, so you'd better choose the the better party to go to. And mm -hmm. the same thing goes for how you spend your money, right? As soon as you spend a hundred dollars on you know. Uh, going to a hockey game, for example, you can't spend a hundred dollars on, you know, going to the theater or uh, or something like that. So if everybody understands this and does it intuitively, why do we why do we have to explain it? Why are you explaining it then? What's the what's your take on that? So I think that that this is the you know sort of crucial distinction about uh, you know living every day uh, through economic concepts and studying economics. 
I think, you know, in the classroom, what we try and do is, is take this behavior that people engage in every day of making decisions and, you know, considering, you know, the options that they'd like to choose and the options that are foregone, and we try to formalize it. And as soon as we try and formalize it, it makes people uncomfortable, uh, you know. So, for example, you know, you know, Greg mentions, right, the, the definition of opportunity cost as the, the value of the best foregone alternative. Well, you know, it's, it's a very clear definition and very precise but sometimes it can be hard to grasp. Uh, in the party example, uh, you know, what it refers to is if you go to party A and there was six other parties you could have gone to, right? You weren't really giving up going to six other parties. You were just going, giving up going to the next best party. And again, when people make that decision, all of this stuff is internal. They don't stop and think, you know, which is the best foregone alternative. And so as soon as we take it in the classroom and say, okay, here's the definition, now apply it, right? People start thinking about it as some kind of abstract mathematical problem or formal problem and not as something they had already done several times that day and will do several times more after they leave the classroom. Right. Th this reminds me of a, of a joke, a carambar joke. Anybody who's uh, familiar with carambar, you know, it's these uh, caramel candies in France. And so inside the wrapping paper, there's horrible jokes. I mean, not horrible in the sense that they're disgusting. Right? They're just, they're just stupid. They're just bad. They're just okay. bad jokes. They're just bad jokes. And, That's and, bazooka Joe for us. Yes, in, uh, uh, but Canada. worse. But worse. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's just text, right? It's not. It's not a bazooka. Oh, cartoon, it's, it's yeah. a cartoon. So this is just text. It's this. Uh, this little kid comes home very proud to his dad and says, "Daddy, Daddy, I saved. Uh, I saved some money today because I I ran behind the bus. You know, I missed the bus and I ran behind it, so I, I saved a bit of money. Uh, are you happy? And dad's not happy at all. Says kid. You should have run behind a taxi, <laughs> right? It's it's stupid, but it's very much <laughs> opportunity cost because anyway, there's all these alternatives of going back home. And if I start explaining the joke, it's not going to be funny. It wasn't very funny in the first place, but you all get that, right? I hope so. Anyway, it plays better to economists, probably. Probably. Right. So if you can indulge me for one more second, I, sure. I have a, a personal anecdote about opportunity cost. Uh, so I uh, generally am a fan of uh, Seth Rogen and his movies. And here's where I can plug something weird. I went to high school with Seth Rogen. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, in, uh, in Vancouver, BC. And uh, awesome. I don't know him very well, but I met him a couple of times. And, um, you know, he's uh, you know, a very popular comedian. That's why I watch his movies, not because I, I have met him before. But was he a funny guy at school or kind of a clown? I didn't class? know him that well. He was a bit younger than me. But uh, from what I understand, yeah, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, a bit of a class clown. And uh, obviously he's done really great things with it. He's, you know, a very good, uh, you know, comedic writer and very smart guy, obviously. And uh, generally was reliable mm -hmm. as a person... To, to go see his movies. So he came out with this uh, animated movie, Sausage Party. And I wow. thought, you know, I like Seth Rogen movies. Uh, I like animated movies. This is going to be wonderful. And people seem to like it. So I, I went to this movie. Uh, you know, I paid, I guess, $25 for a ticket to sit in one of those fancy private chairs. And oh, yeah, because you got to have the, the vibration or whatever, all the, the whole works for that movie, right? Well, experience. not necessarily. It wasn't the vibrating chairs. It was yeah. just the ones that, had, you know, you can recline in properly. Uh, less people. There's no kids around. Um, so right. anyway, probably make myself look bad. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I paid a lot to go see a movie so there'd be no kids around. But um, so I paid $25 to go see the movie. Now I'm sitting in the movie. And within about 10 minutes, I realized that uh, in spite of generally uh, Seth Rogen being a smart guy, he wasn't exercising those muscles for the comedy that was in Sausage Party. It was really kind of dumb, uh, you know, like potty humor the, the whole time. And um, you know, 
I, I'm a busy guy. Uh, my time is relatively valuable. There's lots of other things I could be doing. Party A, party B, we're waiting for you. Not maybe not party, but you know, maybe I could have been watching a hockey game or, or something or reading some statistics about uh, my hockey team. And uh, instead, what I did is I sat through the entire movie cursing in my head about how stupid this movie was and what a waste of time it was. And here I violated two basic principles of economics. So the first thing is, is, you know, the cost of going to see that movie to me, you know, I had to pay $25, but that wasn't really the biggest cost. The biggest cost was taking three hours out of my life that I could have been doing something else. And so, well, uh, the 25 bucks were already paid for, whereas the time that you could have spent doing other stuff, you were still deciding whether you were going to do other stuff or not. Well, exactly. And that's the second thing I did wrong, which is I thought, you know, I pay already paid the 25 bucks. I'm already here. I might as well stay. And that was a huge error because the $25 was gone. The fact that I was already there was gone. I couldn't get any of these things back. What I should have been thinking five minutes into this movie when I realized it was going to be a disaster was, is there anything better I could be doing with my time? If I walked out of here right now, could I spend the next two hours doing something I actually enjoy rather than sitting in this theater getting, you know, more and more, you know, depressed about how terrible this movie was. And so instead of making the right good economic decision, of evaluating the fact that the opportunity cost was high and knowing that I had already lost the $25 no matter what, I stayed. I, I think you're, you're being hard on yourself, though, Annie. I think, uh, I think there's some value to sticking through to the end and so that you're able to say, I've seen the whole movie and now I can bitch about it, about how terrible it is, right? There's, I mean, it keeps me in the seat, right, sometimes. And just like I have to go finish a book, even if I'm halfway through it, I think it's, it's awful and I'm not going to like it. Anyway, there's a, uh, I think there's value to saying, okay, I've seen the whole thing. There's no, doesn't get that much better at the end. Cause I, that's another thing could be very disappointed if it got better suddenly in the last half hour. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but that's just the way different minds work. Like I, I, I'm, I'm very much, uh, I guess a FOMO kind of guy. Right. Well, I mean, after the fact, it's easy for me to say, you know, I made a big mistake. I should have done better. But, you know, it occurs to me that I've made this mistake many times in my life where I've just kept doing something that I knew was terrible. Um, and I, you know, maybe some of it was hoping it would get better, but some of it probably was, I'm just going to see this through to the end, you know, and not thinking, you know, well, and then it will be legitimate in complaining about the movie because I've seen it all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so I guess the conclusion to all of that would be to not watch uh, Sausage Party. Justin, uh, I think you have a good story about traveling. So let's say we travel somewhere, we plan a trip to, let's say, Istanbul or whatever, somewhere in Turkey, which is a big, very cool, cool place. And the question is, well, okay, so the price, the tickets are $1,500. Uh, so we should go, let's say, two to three weeks. And this is where I intervene and say, why? What's, what does this have to do? The $1,500 is the price for the trip, for the plane. Why does that tell us that we should stay two to three weeks? What's your logic there? And the logic is, well, you know, we've paid so much. We have to, you know, to, to make it worthwhile. Like, yeah, well, no. I mean, to me, a trip that is worthwhile, it does not last three weeks. You know, I, the whole point of being on vacation is not to be away from my hobbies for three weeks. It's actually to be somewhere. I like to go places. And that's fine. I'm okay. I'm open-minded enough to, to enjoy seeing new things. But a week is fine. One week is the peak of my satisfaction. Any day after that, you're really reducing the uh the satisfaction that i get out of this trip okay so diminishing returns that we're entering the negative no portion of that 
And so that's that's my argument. This is a sunk cost fallacy, even though this, the cost has not been paid yet. We're still in the planning phase, but we're still. But the whole reasoning is we're going to have paid this much, so therefore we might as well stay a long time. To which I answer, you know, honey, if you want to stay a long time, just say you want to stay a long time, and, and we'll do that. But don't come up with some economic arguments about about how we should stay a long time. So, like, I think I could argue your wife's side. Okay. Um, so I, uh, like I would argue that uh, once you're in Turkey, now everything that's close to Turkey that you might want to do, the marginal cost of doing it is much lower than if you actually have to first get yourself to Turkey. And so knowing that you've committed yourself to being in Turkey and you're going to be in that region for three weeks, you can do these other things that from Turkey are very accessible and not that expensive, but from Canada are, are very uh, expensive. And so that might be a rationale for committing yourself to being in a place uh, for three weeks. Uh, that said, I also agree with you that there is a time that is too long and this benefit gets outweighed. And if that for you is at the end of a week, that makes sense for me. Uh, but I, I think your, your point is, is a very good one. Is But it's, notice how in your point, you never mentioned money, right? It's about, I'm going to be there and what do I do once I'm there? It's not about how much I paid for it. If right. the trip had been 50 bucks, the paid had, if the trip had been $5,000, it wouldn't have changed the thing for you, right? For your argument to, to work. No, that's true. That's true. The way what my wife sees this is, you know, once we had paid that sunk cost of traveling to some destination that's far away, it's now our duty to do as much stuff there as possible. Oh, great. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, she almost ran me to death in Costa Rica uh, one time, just, you know, on the go, uh, early in the morning to late at night every day, you know, busing, hiking, biking all over the country. Uh, meanwhile, it's, you know, 35 degrees. I'm from Vancouver where I've never experienced anything like this. Uh -huh. You know, and like, I'm sick, I can't eat, I'm sweating all the time, I'm wet. Yeah, forget about fun. We have to achieve exactly. performance, right? This is it. Yeah. You know, we're hating it right now, but we'll have cool pictures to tell our friends. Well, exactly. So there, I mean, there were some economic principles behind what you were saying, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think we crossed the line there in terms of misery. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I enjoyed everything that we did. Uh -huh. Well, this is an act of love. Right? <laughs> well, she's put up with a lot of hockey talk in her life, so... I think we're, we're probably not even, but getting there. <laughs> okay. There's a call, there's a call, there's a call for you. There's a call on the phone for you. So today we received a message of Theo. Let's listen to it. Hi, Lenny. Hi, Justin. Hi, Greg. I hope you guys are all right. Uh, my name is Theo. Uh, I'm fascinated with economics and political science, and the last months I've been very rich from this perspective uh, because politicians of many developed countries decided to confine populations and this had not happened at such a large scale since World War II. But now that virus uh, seems to come back in some countries, politicians uh, does not seem really decided to confine again, mainly because of economic issues. Uh, we now see that we can't stop the economy because our whole system has never been designed for such events. But when so many human lives are at stake, how can we calculate the fact that confined population is no longer a good idea? Therefore, my question is, uh, how much worth a human life? Is it possible to measure it economically? And what kind of model are used to reach conclusions that reconfining a, a population would cost more to society than potential numerous human losses? I hope the question will give you some food for thought. Bye, guys. Justin, I'm looking forward to cross you one or later. And uh, same for all the Agir rookies. Bye-bye. Great question. Great to, great to hear your voice, Theo. I hope you, you're doing well. 
Theo was one of our, our first Agir students with, uh, with Greg, uh, by the way. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very deep question that, that, that's being asked us uh, today. And in fact, it, it kind of ties in with uh, the question we had last week, you know, about what, what should be done. Can we stop the economy? And, and, and so we already talked to, touched on that a little bit. I, I think we should maybe today focus on, on exactly what Theo was asking, which is, you know, can we measure the value of a human life? And can we compare it can, to, can we do this trade-off basically? And how difficult is it to, to make this decision of, of restarting the economy if we know it's going to put some lives in danger? Well, why don't we try uh, solving this problem backwards? Because I think that might be instructive of exactly how difficult a question this is. Um, let's say uh, that we could perfectly measure the value of a human life. I'm not saying that we can. We can talk about that issue second. But, you know, let's say that we could put a number on each human life. Uh, and then we would, could put a number on the economy. Uh, then, right, we would have to make a decision about, you know, what's the balance between the, the, the human lives and the economy? And, you know, we could potentially find a balance point between the two that, that balances these two numbers. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is that even if we could apply these numbers, the way that different people evaluate the, you know, or how much emphasis should be placed on human life versus, right, how much value should be placed on the economy, uh, just to imagine sort of sliding the weight between zero and, and one, uh, this is a, a, you know, this issue is, is, you know, tremendously value-laden, right? Some people might say, you know, these human lives are very valuable, but, you know, uh, at the moment, you know, we, we have a, an economic situation that's, you know, very uh, delicate. So we should be putting more emphasis on the economy uh, and, uh, you know, and people are going to evaluate that trade-off in that way. Other people would, might have an opposite opinion. Well, and hang on, so hang on. There, something I'd like to, 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 to clarify, because if you have put a dollar value on a human life, I think that the job is done. I mean, then, then you're just comparing the whole point of putting a value on the human life is to say, now I'm comparing dollars with dollars and I don't have to, to have a, an ethical, put an ethical weight on whether that dollar comes from saving a human life or from restarting the economy. Isn't that the whole point or what? Well, so may, maybe I wasn't being precise enough, perhaps what I meant to say is, is closer to, um, do we want to maximize the total dollar value? Or is there some balance that might be uh, of value to us, right? So uh, really a question about you know, the distribution versus the total. So I, I maybe didn't do a very good job explaining myself. Um, but sort of the idea here was is that, you know, even if we could put numbers on these things, people would still have different uh, preferences or different value that they place on different balances between these numbers or the way that they're distributed. Yeah, I see. Okay. Make, makes a lot of sense. And so, so what you're saying is that that, that basically putting the dollar value doesn't even get us out of the woods, even though this is already putting a dollar value on human life is already something that is a hugely difficult exercise. And we see it every time that we try to put, uh, whenever there's safety measures in place, you know, what's, what's the impact, how much should we spend on, on really being, putting safety measures in place on airplanes, you know, what's, this is really the kind of trade-offs that airline companies are making that any kind of public uh, institution is making when it's deciding what the speed limit should be on the road, for example, you know, because there's an efficiency, there's a loss of efficiency by reducing the speed limit, but there's an increase in safety by reducing the speed limit. So there's fewer accidents or at least fewer deadly accidents. So that, that, that's trade-offs that have to be made time and time again. There's ways to measure, uh, 
a, a human life, then they're not perfect. But uh, for, there's several ways. In fact, if you want to take a, a master's course at HEC Montreal, which is a which which covers that exactly, I I, I used to teach that course and. And so one way that you could do that is you could uh, try to evaluate how people perceive risk and you say, well, how, how much are you willing to pay to have a more dangerous job, for example, a more dangerous occupation? So what you would do is you would have categorized these occupations by a riskiness index and then you ask him, okay, well, are you willing to increase your, the riskiness of your job by one degree? if we give you $10,000 a year more, for example, and depending on how people respond to that, you ask a whole bunch of people that question, and then you get a sort of idea of what the population, and again, it's a survey, but what the population thinks. So that's one way of getting to that. There's other ways, and it's by far not perfect. And in fact, that's why there are other ways, but but we can try to get to that. So, sorry, I uh, just to follow up on that, you know, in a way, the United States election in November could be uh, a referendum uh, along the lines of what you're saying. You know, if you have these two politicians who take very different approaches to this trade-off between the economy and human life, people could express their preferences uh, by voting for the person that they like. Um, the difficulty, of course, being it's not clear that, you know, people are necessarily voting in their best interest in this case. And I'm not going to say which who is in the best interest versus uh, not. Um, but, you know, I think that's one of the difficult things here is that maybe when we're talking about you know, something like car accidents, which, you know, does claim lots of human lives, uh, it might be a little bit easier uh, to quantify because, you know, the consequences of adjusting the speed limit uh, aren't as extreme as locking down the entire population to try and handle a, a pandemic. But also maybe uh, one way to measure the value of human lives from a government point of view would be to measure the lack of consistency of the government of Quebec's or also government when they are creating policies. Like we could take our example as, a, as students, as professors. Right now we cannot go to, to class in person anymore uh, and the limited amount of activities we can do in the university is like so strictly regulated. Meanwhile, uh, a group of people can go in some restaurants or some bar and staying at a table for hours and hours without wearing any mask or without even respecting any social distanciation. And so that difference of treatment between not-for-profit activities such as education and what generates profit such as restaurants, well, in the end, uh, that shows that the government uh, is ready to, to do a trade-off between the risk of, of losses uh, and the economy. Yeah, I think the the inconsistency you're highlighting is is very important, Greg. I, I my son goes to school, you know, and, and the, at at eight o'clock they go and they let them inside the the courtyard, and then they have to be in what they call their bubble, so they just can only be with the people from their own classroom. But for the past twenty minutes before then, they're just playing together outside the school and 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 just hanging out together. You just can't separate seven year olds uh, just that easily, right? So that concept of bubble it's it's always related about everybody has jurisdiction over a certain place and you can't really force what people are going to do outside of that but i think what your your point is greg is deeper is that you're saying potentially the quebec government could could have stricter rules on restaurants and shops and it's just not doing so versus it does have stricter rules on universities is that is that right well what i try to say is that the the virus should be taken with the same level of seriousness uh, whatever the activity is and so if we can 
eat at a table in a restaurant with different people for hours. Maybe we could go to class or to the library more easily. But if that's that dangerous to go to class, well, maybe restaurants should not be open either, you know? I I don't want to say something wrong because I, the rules have been changing a lot in the, in the past few weeks, but my understanding is that the Quebec government wants students to come back to class. Mm. It's really asking, for example, it's asking universities to, to have as many not, I mean, not as many as they can, but to have more students in the classrooms, of course, uh, by making sure that there's enough distance and then there's all these security measures in place. But then the universities are not always equipped. And I mean, equipped in the sense of architecturally, you know, there's the hallways are just as wide as they are. You know, it's not easy to have people. So be, in a classroom, it's fine. You can, you can separate people. You just have a, a less capacity in the classrooms. And so that's fine. But, you know, uh, if you can only have one or two people in the bathrooms, how are you going to deal with that in, you know, in between classes? I mean, if, if you have to have them being disaffected every time, it's just, it's just not, it's just not possible to do that effectively. And so I, it's not about only regulations. I think one reason why there are so many online courses, not online courses, but I mean, virtual courses and uh, right now is because I don't think we've completely figured out how to do the, uh, the, the presence there. So I actually thought of something different, and, and maybe to a certain extent, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but um, I think if we compare the way that the rules are being implemented in uh, restaurants versus the way the rules are being implemented in a uh, university uh, scenario, um, this is actually kind of a, a micro example of the question that Theo was asking, because here you can actually think about the government optimizing the mix between concern for the economy and concern for health according to the situation. Uh, when you think about the universities, that gradient between health and revenue isn't as steep because we're still able to provide education to people from a distance. Now, it might not be the same quality education as uh, in person. We could certainly argue about that. But the point is, is that you don't see as much of a fall off in terms of revenue by uh, teaching at a distance as, you know, restaurants have when they can't have people inside uh, their establishments. And so in that case, you might want to put more emphasis on the economic aspect of restaurants uh, versus safety. Um, also, you know, less people are gathering and mixing in restaurants potentially than are gathering and mixing at universities. So you could argue that, in fact, the Quebec government is being very consistent in the way that they're handling these two different situations by applying uh, a similar, you know, like metric for deciding the trade-off. It's just the result of that trade-off ends up looking very different. I, th I think you're right, uh, Lanny. I think uh, what you said makes a lot of sense. It, in fact, if I maybe would qualify one thing you said is that uh, it's not so much the revenue mm -hmm. different, uh, the gradient that matters, but it's just the quality of what's being offered. So, sure. you know, because at the university level, I mean, it, uh, it's it's not really only a revenue thing. I mean, I think it's a, a lot of it has to do with the quality of the service you can provide. And of course, at restaurants, you know, yes, there you can do deliveries, but it's also it's, it's also different. There's a quality difference than than if you are actually there. And so, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, I buy completely what you said. I think. Well, so actually, in fact, I, I do have a concrete example of this because um, my wife has been working on a project um, that looks at uh, the uh, the risk, the health risk for people. Uh, in different uh, industries, and also not not just the health risk in their industries, but also uh, based on their uh, family composition. Because it turns out actually that if you move from industry to industry, the type of people who work in certain industries uh, varies. 
and they vary along the the characteristics of you know whether they have children, whether they live with older relatives, um, other types of demographic characteristics that might also be risk factors for getting sick. And so the index that was developed by the Vancouver School of Economics to assess the risk in these various industries uh, was developed as a, a reopening strategy or as a tool for the reopening strategy to try to decide which industries did pose the greatest risk for people returning back to work based on the characteristics of the industry and the characteristics of the individuals who likely work in those industries. And this was one tool that... Um, you know, was used first by the British Columbia government, but then was shared with the other provincial governments as one way of trying to figure out, well, you know, how much health risk is there in these different industries? And then, you know, they can use the economic data to try to balance those two things. Now, as I mentioned, you know, where you want to draw that line uh, is still very much uh, subjective, but at least this was one way in which uh, you know, the British Columbia government, th with the help of the Vancouver School of Economics, was was trying to model uh, the the risk that people were facing. Okay, th <laughs> th thank you everyone for listening to uh, today's episode. Uh, we'll uh, see you next week. See you. Bye.